From the Preservation Maryland studios in the historic podcast district of Baltimore, this is PreserveCast. Gettysburg is a special place and has been since the ground was made hollowed by soldiers nearly 160 years ago. Today, as America grapples with its history, especially its Civil War history, places like Gettysburg are critical to the understanding of who we are and where we're headed. Today's guest is responsible for leading the effort to interpret that history. Christopher Gwynn is the Supervisory Park Ranger for the Division of Interpretation and Education, and is working hard to reach all Americans with the story of Gettysburg. Grab your knapsack and toss on your forage cap. We're headed to the crossroads town of Gettysburg on this week's PreserveCast. Hey, this is Nick here. Just a quick reminder that your donations really help, particularly during this difficult time. And if you can't afford a donation today, please give us a five-star review in whatever platform you listen to your podcast. It means a great deal to us. Also, we currently have a deal going on with our friends at Circa Old Homes, where if you buy the Save All the Hold Houses pin, all the proceeds are donated to our Historic Property Redevelopment Program, where we're currently working to save a historic African-American log cabin in Hagerstown, Maryland. Head over to our website, presmd.org, and find out how you can get your pin and help save historic Maryland. Christopher Gwynn has served as a supervisory park ranger for the Division of Interpretation and Education at Gettysburg National Military Park since 2014. Gwynn previously served as an interpretive park ranger at Gettysburg National Military Park. A 2006 graduate of Gettysburg College, he began working at Gettysburg as an intern in 2003 and served the park in a variety of capacities. In addition to his service at Gettysburg, Gwynn, who holds a master's degree in public history, served in interpretation and education positions at a variety of parks over the past 11 years, including Antietam National Battlefield, Boston National Historical Parks, and the National Mall and Memorial Parks. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast, and today we are joined by Supervisory Park Ranger at the Gettysburg National Military Park, Christopher Gwynn, who uh, I have known for many years and excited to talk with him about uh, the work that he's doing and the important role that Gettysburg is playing um, once again, I guess, continuing to play uh, in the national consciousness. Um, certainly, we're hearing a lot more about Civil War sites um, these past many months, and folks like Chris Gwynn are out there on the front lines of this um, trying to tell these important stories. So before we get started, um, we'd love to learn a little bit more about the individuals that we're interviewing. So where does your love of history and, and Civil War history in particular begin? Yeah, well, uh, first off, thanks for having me here. It's, it's great to be able to chat with you about something I care deeply about and um, am very passionate about, so thank you. In terms of my interest in the Civil War, you know, I, uh, I owe a lot to my parents. Uh, I owe a lot to my family that nurtured And I, I owe a lot to, to visiting historic sites. Uh, when I was very young, uh, I think it was 1989, my parents took me on a vacation to, uh, uh, I think it was Colonial Williamsburg. And anyways, uh, on the way down, I grew up in Massachusetts. And on the way down, we stopped at Chocolate World in Hershey, and we stopped at Gettysburg. And to this day, I remember very little about Chocolate World, but the, the visit to Gettysburg just it captured my imagination. Uh, and it's, it's never uh, really uh, abated since then. Um, and, you know, I also was growing up, uh, like you, Nick, at a time when popular culture had really embraced uh, the American Civil War. So 
uh, the film Glory, the Ken Burns Civil War series, TV series like Civil War Journal, obviously the movie Gettysburg, all of these, um, these bits of popular culture just really captivated me and uh, reinforced that, that visit to Gettysburg that, that uh, I had when I was very little. I uh, just grew up reading as much as I could about the Civil War, about American history. Again, I had parents who were very supportive of it. Ended up going to Gettysburg College for my undergrad degree. And uh, while I was a student at the college, I worked for the National Park Service uh, with uh, the then supervisory historian Scott Hartwig and the uh, park historian librarian John Heiser. And have been associated with the Park Service ever since then. So just to think, you could have been a chocolatier. I could have been. I could have been making <laughs> Hershey Kisses. I yeah. had just been slightly different. Yeah, that would have been such a loss for the field. So I'm <laughs> <laughs> so glad to hear that you didn't go in that direction. Although, no, although knowing what that. the kind of passion that you bring to this work, I think the chocolate field missed out on something. <laughs> You know, we'll never know. Will we? We'll we, never we, know. Never, we never know. So, um, so you grew up in Massachusetts, which is interesting. And, and did you lots of trips back? And then you decided to go to Gettysburg College because of the battlefield and the draw of this place? Or what was the, the draw to Gettysburg College? Partially, they have it. They had, and they 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 still do. Actually, in many ways, they've grown it. They have an excellent uh, Civil War program. They have an excellent history program. Their relationship with the National Park Service uh, opened a lot of doors for me. And um, the idea of being able to live and study at a place like Gettysburg for four years was, um, you know, that was a big, big, big draw. And I actually, uh, you know, when I was a high school student, Nick, I ended up attending the Civil War Institute Summer Conference. They have a scholarship program for high school students. So I was able to come down uh, my junior year in high school. I spent a week uh, living on campus, um, engaging with some of the, the then professors. And it was just a, an incredibly impactful experience. And um, you know, that's another thing that propelled me to, uh, to apply to Gettysburg. And I was fortunate enough to get accepted. Yeah, and, and it's sort of like you're the, the perfect example of how all these different programs actually can work because in the end, they created uh, the new supervisory park ranger at the park. Um, it took a while for you to get there. And you, where was your first permanent job in the service? Because that's always the hardest thing to get. Yeah, and yeah, I want to say that I, I, was, I was fortunate in a number of ways. I had excellent people at the park service that really supported me in, in, a, in a number of ways and gave me a lot of opportunities. Um, getting that first permanent job in the park service is really, uh, it's really, really difficult. Uh, and it, it remains very, very difficult. And so I ended up, um, I was a seasonal ranger at Gettysburg along with yourself for a number of seasons, went to Antietam, continued, uh, doing seasonal work for the park service there. My first permanent position with the park service was actually in, uh, downtown Boston, uh, Massachusetts, Boston National Historical Park, which is a, um, it's really very much what is called a partnership park. So the park service, they don't own a tremendous um, amount of property in Boston, but they work with a lot of local organizations to, um, to tell the story of the early American revolution in Boston. So everything from the Boston Massacre right up through the, the Tea Party, uh, really concluding with the, the Battle of Bunker Hill in June of 1775. And so that was my first permanent gig, if you will. I spent about two years there in downtown Boston, and it was, um, it was a fabulous experience. It was very, very different 
in so many ways from the work I did at, at Gettysburg or Antietam. Uh, you know, one of the, the benefits of being a ranger at a, at a place like Antietam, for example, is the level of preservation there. It, it means it's, it's, um, it's easy to be an interpreter in a number of ways at a place like Antietam or Gettysburg with that, that sense of authenticity, that, that physical landscape is, is so well preserved. And one of the challenges of, of working in a place like Boston is I would bring visitors out to the site of the Boston Massacre, uh, which happens in March of 1770. And, and today it's a major intersection in downtown Boston. It's in the financial district. There are high rises, skyscrapers everywhere. So to, to try to get visitors to go back to that moment in 1770, uh, to try to see the, 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 the landscape or the, uh, the city the way that the participants did, that was an enormous interpretive challenge. Uh, but in a lot of other ways, you know, my time in Boston was very productive and it was really eye-opening. Um, I think in the long run, it made me a better public historian and a better ranger. So you're the supervisory park ranger for the Division of Interpretation and Education, uh, which is a, a big title and uh, a big division. What does it mean and what's an average day look like for you? Well, you know, what does it mean? Um, that's, that's a tough question. What I would like to think is that when you come to Gettysburg and you're a visitor, any way that you engage with the history of the place, any way you consume the history, I have a hand in, uh, be it the, the experience you might have out on the battlefield, the experience you have in the museum and visitor center, the programs you go on if you're a school student or a young learner, your field trip to Gettysburg. And I'm, I'm fortunate to work with some, some amazing educators and rangers and public historians to do that work. So, you know, one part of my job is that. It's the public history aspect. So what is the experience of visiting Gettysburg? How are we encouraging our visitors to think critically about the past? What, what ways are we um, uh, helping visitors connect with, with the history here? And then the other part of it is the less glamorous part, but it's the administrative and managerial aspect of, of working for the federal government. So uh, hiring, purchasing, managing a budget, um, knowing and understanding rules and regulations and policies that that help guide and direct our work that help us engage with partners uh, a big part of working at Gettysburg is is being a good partner to the dozens of external stakeholders we call them or, or you know fellow stewards of this place be it the Gettysburg Foundation the the amazing work the licensed battlefield guides do uh, Gettysburg College the Seminary Ridge Museum and it just goes on and on and on so uh, working with those entities, creating positive partnerships, um, managing kind of the sustainability of our operation at Gettysburg, and um, you know, primarily helping to improve the visitor experience, helping to uh, connect visitors with the past here. And to give people a, a sense of the scale, how many employees do you have? What, what is it, What's the division size of and how many direct reports do you have? So let's, let's assume this is a normal summer. So right. uh, we've gone. 2021, we've returned to the, the halcyon days of uh, Gettysburg National Military Park. Uh, I directly uh, oversee a division of 21 employees. That's permanent employees and seasonal employees. Uh, we also have a, an incredibly robust internship program over the summer months where we bring in primarily undergrad students to get their first experience in, in doing public history work in the field. Uh, we have a very robust volunteer program of, of 
um, dozens upon dozens of really dedicated individuals who come to this park to, to help us do the work that we do. So it's, it's a big operation. There's a lot of moving parts to it. Uh, and it's in a lot of ways, it's a very complex operation. Gettysburg's a unique park. It's a big park. Um, or at the very least, has a big name. It's well, it's well known. And so, you know, we have, we have a fairly high uh, visitation rate, about a million people a year come to the Battlefield Park, explore the Battlefield, come to the Museum and Visitor Center. And so, um, yeah, it's a, big, it's a big job. It's a big job. So, you know, I, I guess this is probably the understatement of the year, but history has really taken center stage over the past several months, um, you know, through a pandemic where people are trying to draw comparisons to the past uh, through some pretty significant civil unrest. So without going into the details of all those particular moments, why do you think a place like Gettysburg still matters? In, in moments like this, what, what, can, what can it tell us about where we were, where we're headed? You know, is there still relevance for a story like Gettysburg in the midst of such scary modern times? Yeah, well, if, if, if there was ever anyone that doubted the relevancy of the American Civil War, the Battle of Gettysburg to American life in 2021, uh, I think this year has has, has demonstrated the fact that it is incredibly relevant. So, you know, if you distill it down to its, its basic fundamental points, what is the American Civil War about, right? It's about issues of race. It's about what does it mean to be an American? It's about the role of the federal government in the lives of everyday people. That's really, that's the medium in which we, we, we work here at Gettysburg, these big fundamental questions about our society. And I, I challenge anyone to watch 20 minutes of news, and you can pick whatever channel you want. Read one newspaper, and it doesn't even matter to me what newspaper that is. You will find something about race in America. You will find something about what does it mean to be a citizen and who gets to be a citizen. And you'll read something about the role of the federal government in the lives of everyday people. And so this is an incredibly relevant topic. I, I don't know if there's a more relevant uh, park to, to life in 2021. Uh, than, than the Civil War battlefields that the National Park Service manage. Uh, and then, you know, another, another thing that we're dealing with as a nation right now is how do we remember the, the American Civil War and our national landscape? How do we remember it? Whose story gets told? Uh, what is that story? And it's, um, it's, it's produced a very heated uh, debate and in some cases, uh, primarily in Charlottesville, um, a few years ago, it's produced physical violence. And one of the things that I like to share with visitors when they come to the battlefield and when we're out on the battlefield together is that this debate we're having right now about how do we remember the Civil War and how do we remember the Confederacy in particular? This is not a new debate. This is not a novel debate. And Americans have been having this debate since literally 1863. So if you look at the battlefield as, a, as a, a landscape of memory and remembrance, this place has always, always, always struggled with how do we remember the Confederacy? How do we remember the role of the Army of Northern Virginia on this battlefield? Uh, it, it, it begins in 1863 when the community is trying to figure out what do we do with these Confederate bodies that are all over the battlefield, all, all of the, the community? How do we how do we deal with the Confederate dead? George Meade, commander of the Army of the Potomac, when he comes here in 1869 to dedicate the Soldiers National Monument, 
talks about this very thing. He's riding through this battlefield where he can still see the 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 tangible uh, remnants of the mass graves that are all over the battlefield. And uh, you know, as time goes on and the elements take their effect, these Confederate graves are slowly being exposed. And in 1869, George Meade is saying, "Listen." I don't want to honor the Confederacy. I, I don't believe what they fought for is right, but human decency requires us to do something with their dead, which of course happens in 1872. And then in the 1880s and 1890s, Union veterans return to the battlefield. They dedicate monuments and memorials. And then over time, slowly but surely, uh, Confederate states begin the process of memorializing the battlefield. And this is an incredibly controversial thing in the 1890s and then in the early 1900s to the 1920s and 30s. And you have Union veterans who are uh, outspoken in their, uh, not disgust, but they're outspoken against the idea that on the Gettysburg battlefield, there would be monuments or memorials that might uh, portray a moral equivalency between the Union army that fought in the battlefield and the Confederates that fought in the battlefield. Uh, and you can go into our archives and files, and, and we're actually digitizing these to make them public. But you can go through these these primary source documents related to the Virginia Memorial or the Alabama Memorial or the North Carolina Memorial, where there's this bitter debate that takes place over what these monuments are going to say, what they're going to look like, where they're going to appear on the landscape. Um, and so this this debate that we're having right now, it's not new. It's not new and it's not novel. It goes all the way back to the era of the veterans who fought at Gettysburg. How are we going to remember the past? How are we going to remember the American Civil War at battlefield parks like Gettysburg? And we're just, we're just, we're continuing this debate. We just, we're, we're the next evolution of this debate in, in 2021. Yeah. And what an important place to, to have that conversation and what an opportunity to have it, although it is difficult sometimes in 2020 or whatever year it is to have that conversation. Well, that, that's the great challenge uh, of being a public historian, where, especially at a place like Gettysburg, you're dealing with often very complex, uh, often contested and controversial the subject matter. And your job as a public historian is to make that accessible, to get visitors to think critically, and to hopefully reveal some of the meanings that the landscape um, holds. And, you know, I'm, I, I think we have an amazing team at Gettysburg, even down to the, the seasonal rangers who spend their summers working at this battlefield park. They are engaging with, again, very complex, very contested history, but incredibly relevant history. Uh, and you know, that's why um, I think it's such a, a high honor to work at a place like Gettysburg, but also an enormous responsibility to be able to, to deal with this uh, in, a, in an objective way, but also in an accessible way. Well, the place couldn't be in better hands than with Park Ranger Excellence Ranger Christopher Gwynn. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, really, it is. Uh, you're right. It's 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 a really difficult um, conversation to have, but one that we have to have. So let's get a quick break here, and um, we will come back uh, and talk a little bit about traditional interpretation um, and where you guys are headed with um, online content and. Uh, a little bit beyond that, and we'll do that right here on PreserveCast. 100 years ago in 1920, the 19th Amendment to the Constitution of the United States was signed into law and officially granted 20 million American women the right to vote. 
This mass expansion in voting rights was the result of generations of intense activism known as the women's suffrage movement that has had a lasting legacy on the continued fight for equality in America. In recognition of the struggles and achievements of a once disenfranchised majority, PreserveCast is honored to share remarkable stories of suffragists within each episode this year. Beyond the Ballot is supported by Preservation Maryland, Gallagher, Avilius, and Jones Attorneys at Law, and the Maryland Historical Trust. To learn more about influential women, past and present, or to donate, please visit ballotandbeyond.org. This week on Ballot and Beyond, we'll learn about Lucy Diggs Slow, a skilled athlete that helped break the color barrier in women's tennis. Read by Sean T. Daniels, Executive Director of the Baltimore National Heritage Area. Lucy Diggs Slow. Lucy Diggs Slow was the most influential advocate of change for African American women in education in the first half of the 20th century and the first African-American woman to win any national sports championship. Slow graduated from the Baltimore Colored School and the Colored High School. She graduated from Howard University and obtained a master's degree from Columbia University at the time when one-third of 1% of African-Americans and only 5% of white Americans had attended any college. At Howard University, she was one of the first 16 original founders of the Alpha Kappa Alpha, the first sorority for African-American women in the country and dedicated to service and leadership. She taught English at Frederick Douglass High School before moving to the District of Columbia, where she organized the first junior high school for black students. In 1922, Howard University appointed her as the university's first dean of women where she created a women's campus, arguing that separation of the genders would foster women's education. She helped create the National Council of Negro Women and two organizations that advocate for African-American college women, the National Association of College Women and the National Association of Women's Deans and Advisors of Colored Schools. She held that women's education should be the highest quality equal to that of men, clashing with the university's male leadership. She went on to spearhead change across the country and was the first African-American invited to address the predominantly white National Association of Women Deans in 1931. Slow considered the talents and capabilities of African-American women as so great and potential that they should help lead the rest of the world. In 1917, African-Americans were barred from competing in the U.S. Lawn Tennis Association. So black tennis clubs created their own, the American Tennis Association. Slow was an accomplished player, and when she won the inaugural championship match at Druid Hill Park in Baltimore, she was the first African-American woman to win a national championship in any sport, paving the way for Althea Gibson, who later broke the international tennis color line. Lucy Dick Slow died in 1937. She was inducted into the Maryland Women's Hall of Fame in 2011. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. Uh, today, we're talking to Supervisory Park Ranger for the Division of Interpretation and Education at the Gettysburg National Military Park, Christopher Gwynn. 
We've been talking about the relevance of Gettysburg and how he got into this line of work uh, and the challenging and sometimes difficult conversations that are had um, that are really just a continuation of conversations that have been had since the war itself. Um, you know, I think the, tradi- the traditional experience of interpretation on a battlefield, what most people think of probably the guided walk, the lecture, looking at you know, sign panels, things like that. It still holds a lot of power. There's still a lot of value to that. And obviously you still invest a lot in that, but you've also begun to put a lot of content online. Um, and so I'm curious what you like better if you have, uh, you know, a favorite and, um, also where, you know, is the biggest audience that you're reaching nowadays? Yeah, I mean, that's, that, that's a good question. So the national park service is a, place-based agency, right? And I'm a tremendous believer in the power of place. So there's only one little round top. There's only one Soldiers National Cemetery at Gettysburg. And uh, I know certainly for for myself, this is true, but I believe that for, for anyone who visits a place like Gettysburg, it can be an incredibly transformative experience. And visiting a, an historic site like the Gettysburg Battlefield, has the ability to connect you with the past in a way that few, if any, other mediums can. So I'm, I'm a big believer in, in physically bringing visitors to the battlefield and getting them out on this landscape. And I think, you know, the, the more traditional models of, of site-specific interpretation that you talk about, the, the, the ranger campfire programs, the hikes, the walks, the talks, there's an enormous uh, uh, call for those. I mean, we do on a normal year programs throughout the day that that attract thousands of individuals. I and mean, we're fortunate that we have people that are so invested in our story and our park, they want that experience. And nothing can ever replace that. Uh, nothing can, can ever uh, replicate that. But out of both, I think, necessity, but also... Um, in, in furtherance of, of our mission at Gettysburg, which is to educate, to reach people, I think parks need to rethink what the geographic boundaries of their park really mean. And I think we really need to use technology to reach beyond that. Uh, so, you know, we've been very active uh, on Facebook, on social media. We have, uh, in terms of our YouTube channel, uh, millions upon millions of minutes of footage watched on our YouTube channel. And, um, one of the things that I think that that does is it encourages visitation. So if we were to film some of our ranger programs, our, our winter lecture series, which we've done quite a bit of, and we make that available to the public, not only should it educate, but it also should be that, that, that draw that hopefully brings them back to the battlefield. So if you're watching one of the rangers out on Culp's Hill and uh, through this this video or this social media program you're watching, it just brings that story to life. I think you'd, you'd want to go there the next time you visit. So that's a big part of it. Uh, an even bigger part, though, for me, and what I really care about is, is the shelf life, right? So if you visit the battlefield and you go on a ranger program, it, hopefully it's this amazing experience. Uh, it's an unforgettable experience, but it's over after... 30 minutes or 45 minutes or two hours or whatever it happens to be. The beauty of, of utilizing Facebook or YouTube, um, some of these, um, especially these content rich platforms is that if we film that Ranger program or if we film that lecture, or if we create this really dynamic virtual experience, it, it never goes away. 
and you can pull it off the shelf anytime you want, regardless of where you are, and have that experience again. So, you know, some of our, our YouTube content, we get feedback from our digital and virtual visitors that they listen to these things all the time. And then sometimes they bring them out to the battlefield with them uh, via their, you know, their, their, their mobile phones. And it's just it's another layer of, of experience. It's been tremendous, uh, tremendously successful for us. And I think, uh, you know, that's in a lot of ways the future. But it's never going to replace a physical visit to the park. And it's not intended to. It's intended to, to build on it or encourage it. And, you know, one of the great things, if there is any, of this pandemic is that we've seen a lot of great content being produced by historic sites across the country, both within the National Park Service and uh, a lot of these um, external sites. Um, a, a few come to mind. The National uh, Civil War Medical Museum down in Frederick has done tremendous programming. The Civil War Institute at Gettysburg College, working with John Heckman, a tattooed historian, uh, certainly uh, preserved cast here with, uh, with you, Nick. Uh, I think the pandemic has forced a lot of sites to rethink their, their strategy and to uh, really embrace the digital medium in a way that maybe pre-COVID they, they didn't do. So I, I'm curious. I mean, I, I wanted to ask you, you know, if you had unlimited funds for interpretation, what you would do differently at Gettysburg. But I'm also curious how you pull together the resources to do the AV work and to get everything on social media. How does that work on the back end for you guys? Yeah, you know, we're fortunate that we have a lot of great people that work at the park that are certainly more tech savvy than I am. So we have a visual information specialist works here and a big part of his job is is the, the the web aspect the digital aspect helping my division connect with our visitors online so we're fortunate that we have that and you know we're also fortunate that we bring on especially our seasonal staff uh that that come with uh, a degree of, of tech savvy that i certainly don't have that have really embraced this new medium and have helped i think the park as a whole forward our our efforts a bit uh, and so you know this year for example we switched entirely to digital and online content there was no in-person programming uh, on the battlefield this, this, this summer season, which is certainly different, but it enabled us to, I think, get better at doing uh, public history online. And it certainly um, forced us to learn how to do it better. And, uh, you know, I think in a lot of ways, again, it's the kind of the future that a lot of historic sites need to move in. And, uh, you know, my, my hope is that um, before too long, you're going to see additional resources made available from Gettysburg. We're working on a project where we're going to allow visitors virtual access through this immersive 3D technology into a lot of our historic buildings. So if you wanted to virtually visit the, the Lydia Leister house where George Meade on July 2nd held his council of war, you'll be able to do that uh, online uh, through this, this program. And it's even um, compatible with... Um, you have uh, you know these virtual reality Google Cardboard or Oculus. It'll be compatible with that technology, so you can physically immerse yourself into the site. So there's a lot of exciting things I think we're doing uh, that that will hopefully help connect our our digital visitors with the battlefield. That's super cool. We'll have to we'll have to when we're allowed to see each other again in person, uh, we'll have to come out and see that because that sounds really neat. And I think that there's a lot of potential there for other sites. Um, Particularly places like Gettysburg, where you know I I come probably almost I don't know maybe every weekend with my daughter looking for places to hike, and you know it's always like oh it would be really cool to see inside that building, right? I mean, there's just so many great historic structures on the battlefield, and 
you know, that, that has always been sort of a limitation there um, just because of resources and things, which I guess is maybe a good, good way to segue to this. If you had unlimited funds for interpretation, what would you do differently? Or would you? Well, you know, I don't, if I, so I have unlimited money. Uh, I, you know, I think the first thing that I would do is use that money to remove barriers uh, for, for visitation. And, and what do I mean by that? Uh, so right now, um, like many historic sites, if you want to see the museum, if you want to go to the cyclorama, see the orientation film, it's a fee. And we have to charge that fee to be able to sustain our operation. So if I had unlimited money, I'd simply remove that as a barrier to visitation and the museum and visitor center would be free. I would, um, I would use that money to make sure that every school group that wants to visit Gettysburg but can't because of a lack of funding has the ability to go on a field trip to Gettysburg. Um, so that, you know, if I had unlimited funds, that's probably how I would spend it. It's interesting. And interesting to think about the barriers. And I, I suppose if there's funders out there listening, maybe they can, uh, they can remove some of those barriers. Uh, you know, and, and we're fortunate that we have uh, uh, great partners in the Gettysburg Foundation and the American Battlefield Trust and a lot of other entities that are able to, through their, their philanthropic efforts, help us with that. But, you know, we can always use more help. Right. And uh, the Park Service is very focused on getting diverse visitors to the national parks. And that's always been a challenge. And usually when we think about diversity, we think about uh, racial diversity or ethnic diversity. And one thing that uh, I think we don't want to lose sight of is there's a lot of socioeconomic diversity as well. I mean, Gettysburg costs, costs some money to go on a vacation, right? So if you're a family of four from some far-flung place, you have limited funds, you got to drive to Gettysburg. You got to get here. You got to pay for a hotel. You got to pay for food. You got to pay for your uh, visit to the, the museum and visitor center. If you want to go on a, a bus tour with a licensed battlefield guide, that costs a fee. And so it's not just that we're not reaching enough ethnically diverse visitors or racially diverse visitors. Uh, I don't think we're reaching enough economically challenged visitors as, as well. We have a great program that I'm enormously proud of. It's called the Great Task Youth Leadership Program. And we, we run that in conjunction with uh, our education branch here, uh, led by Barb Sanders and John Hoptak. And what that program does is it leverages some of the philanthropic partners we have to bring usually diverse, usually um, economically challenged youth groups to the battlefield for an extended uh, visit. And I, I've seen these groups come. I've seen the program. It is incredibly transformative. And I'd like to replicate the, the success of that more with other groups. And so, you know, if I had unlimited money, that's what I would do. I, I, I try to facilitate visitation to Gettysburg by removing some of those barriers. It's a great, great, great answer. Interesting sort of insight on that. So we'll move here to some quick rapid fire questions. We'll jump into the mind of Ranger Gwynn here for a second and, and, and perhaps offend some people with his answers. We'll see. Um, <laughs> nothing at Gettysburg is without controversy. Um, no, no. Favorite part of the battlefield. Favorite part of the battlefield. It depends on what I'm working on. Uh, my favorites change. So if I'm working on something related to Little Round Top, Little Round Top is my favorite part of the battlefield. One that uh, is kind of perennially uh, favored is uh, East Cemetery Hill. And the story there is fascinating. It's one of the earliest parts of the battlefield. It's preserved. And 
that's the first part of the battlefield I have a memory of. So on that trip that I talked about earlier, uh, visiting the park with my family, we parked at that parking lot that's still there today. Uh, and, and I you know, remember walking up and uh, seeing the lunettes on top of East Cemetery Hill where Ricketts Battery was. You know. uh, it was just such an impactful moment for me. And it, it, it still kind of draws me. I think prim- primarily for personal reasons, right? Yeah. That's part of Gettysburg's story. Uh, but I, I do love it up there. It's an evocative place, and I th- I feel like for for the for the number of acres, there's 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 a lot going on there. There's architecture, there's artillery, there's monuments, there's fences. It's just a very it's rich with texture. So you can't go wrong with the really, cemetery hill. Really yeah. Um, favorite historic house or farm on the field? Uh, like my previous answer, kind of changes. Um, I'm very drawn towards the James Warfield House right now. And that's primarily the result of the work that we're actively doing at that site. So for your, your listeners who don't know, the James Warfield House is the home of a free African-American family. It's smack dab in the middle of the Confederate battle line on July 2nd and July 3rd, located on Warfield Ridge, hence the name. And for many, 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 many years, that, that house was privately owned. And it, it became kind of this Frankenstein house, right, where the core of the home was an original 1863 structure. But over the years, some subsequent owners, uh, they built onto the house. And so, you know, if you were to come to the battlefield in 2019, and if you were to look at that house, it looks like a modern structure. But buried beneath all that is that original 1863 home. For the past year, our uh, historic preservation team at the park has been rehabilitating that home. So we're removing those non-historic elements to reveal the original battlefield, battle-era home underneath. And now, uh, within the next year or two, we're going to start to actively interpret that site. So, you know, in terms of historic structures, that that Warfield home is what I'm really drawn to right now for so many reasons. The interpretive significance of the site, the the rehabilitation work that our our teams have been able to do, and this kind of forensic uh, architectural... uh, uh, preservation effort going on inside as we remove these these modern elements to reveal the, the real structure underneath. Yeah, and talk about the layers of history. I mean, having not only the the physical layers, but also just you know the Confederate line, and here's a free African American home. And I mean, I'm sure you guys can make can make that story sing, and 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 it should, and it hasn't in a very long time. Uh, yeah, I think I think it's going to be. Um, really provocative site when we're done you know if you're a visitor and you're driving along seminary ridge going down west confederate avenue and you're confronted with these um very imposing uh, memorials that line the avenue and then all of a sudden you confront this small stone farmhouse that has a very different story to tell i think it's going to add a whole new layer to that experience great uh, what's the best quiet spot on the field for someone? Now, I, I guess by giving this answer, you could ruin the the quiet nature of it if too many people yeah, listen. <laughs> but but what's what? Where's the place you go for solitude? That's, that's that's one of the great things about the battlefield, though, in that you know we have seven thousand acres in the park, and most visitors you know, kind of stick to the the tour road and the, the major sites. But with very little effort, you can uh, you can uh, take yourself to some of these out-of-the-way places where uh, you'll find not only solitude, but I think a new new lens through which to view the battlefield. And there's so many of them. Um, for example, there's a hill called Powers Hill. 
It's an artillery platform during the battle. It's uh, located along the Baltimore Pike. Uh, George Meade relocates there during the bombardment prior to Pickett's Charge. And there are some beautiful uh, regimental and battery memorials and monuments on top of this hill. And it's, you know, it's uh, all but forgotten by the vast majority of visitors. So you can go up there and visit a really unique site and you'll have it to yourself. Something as simple as the summit of Big Round Top. I mean, if you got the time and the energy to hike up the side of that hill, uh, you'll probably have the summit to yourself, and you'll find monuments to regiments like the 20th Maine, for example, that that occupy the hill the the evening of July 2nd. And so, one of the great things about a park like Gettysburg is there's so much to see, and there's so many of these kind of hidden corners that, with a little bit of effort, you can find and have this entirely different experience. You know, it's like it's like, kind of like being a ranger at the Grand Canyon, right? Only 5% of visitors, I think, actually go below the rim of the Grand Canyon. But it's a really different experience. And so, you know, that's what I would encourage our visitors to do when you come here is, is, is take the time to hike one of our trails, find some of these out-of-the-way places for a, a, different, uh, a different perspective in the park. Yeah. Yeah, I always love the horse trails too, particularly off Seminary Ridge and things like that. You you get a, a different perspective, um, and you and you lose a lot of people there. And if there's not normally not a you tremendous do. amount of horse traffic. <laughs> um, uh, final rapid fire question: favorite monument? Oh man, favorite favorite monument. That is that is tough. I've always been drawn to the 20th Massachusetts Monument, uh, and for those of you that don't know, it's on Cemetery Ridge. It's just south of the Copse of the Trees. And it's this giant uh, conglomerate boulder that uh, comes from Roxbury, Massachusetts. It's called Pudding Stone. And it's the state rock of Massachusetts. You know, visitors see it. And uh, yeah, I, I, you know, somebody asked me if it was a meteorite. It, 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 it kind of defies uh, interpretation to a degree. But um, it's, uh, it's so unique. And the, uh, the fact that these, these Massachusetts veterans who fought on July 3rd, suffered enormous casualties. Uh, the fact that they chose to bring a piece of their home state down to Gettysburg, uh, is always, uh, I've always been drawn to it, in part because I'm from Massachusetts, I think. But it's just such a unique memorial. It's so different than the other ones out there. So that's yeah. my favorite right now. Yeah, I like that. So um, before we go, um, where can people learn? I mean, obviously, there's a lot of different places, but... Um, learn more about Gettysburg and perhaps keep up with you and what you're doing for the park. Absolutely. Um, online, our website, www.nps.gov forward slash G E T T. That'll get you to the national park service, Gettysburg national military park webpage. Uh, online, you can uh, follow us on Facebook at Gettysburg national military park, as well as uh, on Twitter and on YouTube. We're always releasing new content. Uh, we, uh, pretty good about about uh, communicating with our digital visitors through those mediums. So check us out online, and uh, you'll find all kinds of ways to connect with the battlefield. Very cool. And get out there. Maybe maybe uh, once uh, everybody's healthy again, you can get out on a on a Ranger Gwyn battle walk or something like that around the anniversary. Uh, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then. Mo- generally the most difficult question we ask and we'll we'll give you a pass so beyond gettysburg your favorite historic site or place oh wow that is painfully difficult um i think i think minuteman national park in massachusetts 
uh, site of the, obviously the opening battles of the American Revolution. I think that's the crown jewel of Massachusetts National Parks. They preserve what's called Battle Road, which um, connects a, a portion of the battlefield stretching between North Bridge, where the, the first shots are fired, and Lexington Green. Uh, it's a beautiful national park. It's um, it's a very evocative place. It's often very um, quiet, peaceful, and uh, you know I love exploring that park. So I'm going to go with Minuteman. Fantastic answer. Fantastic place. Been there and definitely worth the trip. Um, this has been so much fun. Always good to hear from you. Um, and so glad to, I know I joke with you, but so glad to know that Gettysburg is in good hands. Um, and that one of the good guys um, is running Gettysburg's uh, education interpretation. Thank you so much for joining us today, Chris. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's show, notes, and all previous episodes, visit PreserveCast.org. You can also find us online at Facebook and Twitter at PreserveCast. This program was supported by the Historic Preservation Education Foundation. PreserveCast is produced by Preservation Maryland in Baltimore City. Thanks again for your support, and remember to keep preserving.